chapter, 1 Kings chapter 12. I'll begin at verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said. Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. This is the word of God spoken to us. God's people. And so let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask that your word would be applied to our hearts. Lord, that we would not simply learn the, the lessons that, that should have been applied thousands of years ago, but that we would learn the lessons you want us to apply now. Lord, that in seeing the, the chaos and rebellion of, of your people, we would see the, the chaos, the foolishness, the sinfulness of our own hearts, our own rebellion. Lord, that you would turn us from sin, that we might turn back and follow after you. Lord, I pray that, that your word would be clear to us, that these historical details would not obscure the clarity of your gospel, the good news of the promises you have made to us. And so, Lord, we come praying that, that we would hear the, the message of grace, that we would see the glory of Jesus, our true King. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in his name. Amen. Growing up, my dad used a card game to help my sister learn the difference between the, the different denominations of coins. Because it's really not all that intuitively obvious. Like, a nickel 
should clearly be worth more than a dime. I mean, it's way bigger than a dime. And so he used the card game blackjack to teach us the denominations of money. So all of the money came out of one bag, and then at the end of the night, all of the money went back into the same bag. So we were neither making nor losing money nor really gambling much. We were, we were learning the, the game. And, one of the, and, and the difference between a nickel and a dime. But one of, the, one of the key strategic lessons that you need to know if you're going to play blackjack, and that's the, the game where you have two cards and you're trying to get them to add up to 21 and beat the dealer. All right, so you're trying to get to 21. One of the key strategic lessons you need to know if you play blackjack is if you are dealt two aces, you always split the aces, double your bet, and now you're going to win double. You got it? Because an ace is the, is the card you want, because that's, that's worth 11. You're going to get that 10, which is going to come out. You're going to hit 21. You're going to win. But if you have aces, you always split the aces, because statistically, you should win not just one hand, you should win both hands. Now, 1 Kings 12 is the moment when God is splitting the aces. Now, now on the one hand, yes, it's clear and it's obvious, the, the, the division of the kingdom, Judah and Israel, the fact that we will have in this chapter two men called king over Israel, is the result of Solomon's sin. But, but, I, but I want us to, to look at it this way. This is also a great opportunity because not only is God going to make promises to Rehoboam, he has also made promises to Jeroboam. And he is now giving the people of God twice the opportunity to win. And really, if they play it right, which just means to stay at the table, if they play it right, they should both win. See, but, but sadly, sadly, God's promises are, are not believed by either of these kings. So let's look first, really this morning, at, at, at these promises, and then, then look at the, the king's failures. So now, I understand. I, we, we, we're starting a new series. We jumped into the middle of an Old Testament book, and we jumped about 2,950 years into the past, and I've just thrown a bunch of names at you. And the worst part of it is, these, the two kings that we have are really hard to keep separate. Because if I had started and said, hey, give me a word that rhymes with Jeroboam, you would have, you would have thought, I have no idea. Except in this chapter, we have a name that rhymes with Jeroboam, Rehoboam. And so, you may even hear me mix these two kings up. Because in some sense, their failures mirror one another. And even the fact that, that we lose sight of the historical context it, it is a reminder to us that, that yes, this, there were lessons here that should have been learned by the people of God then. But the important thing is that there are lessons here for the people of God to learn now. Because think of God's promises. There are now not just, not just one opportunity to win. There are two opportunities to win. The, the aces have been split. And think of it, you're not, you're not even betting your own money at this point. You're now playing with the house's money. It's God's promises. He's, he's the one who's laid his promises, his blessings out. There's, there should be no way to lose this game because God's promises are great. Look at, think of God's promises to, to Rehoboam. He is the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. 
We, we have to go back to chapter 11 to be reminded of this. That's the chapter in which Solomon dies. Because there are promises given, even in the, the warning that the kingdom will be split, there are promises that God repeats to Rehoboam. Look at, look at with me at verse 36 of chapter 11. So we're going back to a chapter that I did not read this morning. Verse 36, where God says, I will give Rehoboam, I will give, give one tribe to his son, to Rehoboam, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. Or verse 39, yes, the, the division of the kingdom is judgment, but, but look at verse 39. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. And in our chapter, we hear the, the name David. Even though he's been dead for decades, we hear his name repeated. And, it, and if you were to continue to read in the chapter, you would, you would see it repeated even more about the house of David, that the, the loyalty to, to David and his house, to the kingdom of David, because the, the writer here of 1 Kings wants us to remember the great, big, gigantic, enormous promise God has already made to David. It's, it's found in the books which come right before First and Second Kings in, in Second Samuel 7. This great pinnacle, this high point of Old Testament theology where God makes this promise to King David. God says, your house, your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. That's the promise that Rehoboam has. A forever, indestructible, non-negotiable promise from God. It cannot be destroyed. That's the ace that is laying on the table. But then, even in judgment of, of Solomon's sin in splitting the kingdom, God lays down another ace. Because Jeroboam, who will become king of Israel, Jeroboam, the, the other king, is given the promise of God. Again, back to chapter 11 of 1 Kings. We, we read in verse 29, we read about, about this man Jeroboam and the promise that is made to him. Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 pieces tribes. So you, you see the scene? The prophet arrives wearing this coat, rips it into shreds, and says to Jeroboam, there is a promise coming for you. And, and look at how big this promise is. Jump ahead with me to verses 37 and 38 of chapter 11, where God says to, to Jeroboam, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. Do, do you see the other ace that's now laid down? It's a promise as big as the promise God made to David. See, now the people of God should. And, and, and Jeroboam, what, what we know of Jeroboam at this point, he is a man destined for success. When we were first introduced to him, back at, look at, look again, chapter 11, back at verse 26, he's, a, he's one of Solomon's officials. He's an Ephraimite. He's a, he's a man of Israel from, from Zerida. His mother was a widow named Zeruah. 
And in verse 28, this is what we're told about Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the labor force of the house of Israel. I mean, do you, do you see who, he's a man poised for success, a rising star in, in Solomon's in kingdom administration. And then, and then he's given the great promise of God that he, if he follows and obeys God, his kingdom will endure as long as David's kingdom. See, Israel has great promises here. Two aces on the table. Two opportunities for God's people to succeed. But sadly, we, we, we barely move out of chapter 11 before chapter 12, everything falls apart. For Rehoboam, the king, the grandson of David, the son of Solomon, we see his foolishness and arrogance. The rejection of advice when, when he is made king and the people ask, Will you lighten the load on us? And there's some wisdom in his initial response. Give me some time. Let me seek the advice of, of those around me. He doesn't just, doesn't just throw an answer at them. He goes for advice, but, but very quickly we find out he's not really looking for advice. He's just looking for somebody to tell him, you can be as mean as you want. You can take all that you want. Because he very quickly rejects the, the advice of, of the, the older men around him and goes to the younger men, the men who'd grown up with him. And, and now remember, by younger men, we don't mean men like 15, 16 years old. He's 41 years old when he becomes king. They should know better than this. Because what's their answer? Lighten the load? You want a lighter load? You thought, my, you thought Solomon was a big man? My pinky is bigger than Solomon's waist. You thought his load was heavy? I'm going to make it heavier. He whipped you with, he, he, he pulled out the whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions to prove how powerful I am. And yes, we, we, we see his, his obvious foolishness, and, and perhaps we're, we're tempted to jump to the, the quick conclusion. Well, don't listen to the foolish advice of your peers. Don't listen to the dumb things that people around you are saying. Go find somebody who's been there, somebody who actually knows something. And, and there's some wisdom in that. I mean, if, if we were to go to the, the book of Proverbs and, and, and look for the, the people from whom you should take advice— There'd be some wisdom, but, but, but God doesn't want us to just short-circuit and just kind of stop there. Because he actually gives us the, the answer. Why is this happening? Why is Rehoboam acting so foolishly? Look at verse 15. God says why. In verse 15, the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. That's the promise that a king, the kingdom of Solomon would be ripped into pieces. You see, God is keeping his promises. God's sovereign purposes will not fail even in the face of human stupidity. That's the message of 1 Kings 12. Your sin, my sin, cannot derail God's promises. Even the sin of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the grandson of David, cannot defeat God's purposes. And notice that, that Rehoboam's choice is clearly free. He's acting stupidly on his own, and yet he's fulfilling God's sovereign purposes. But, but, but maybe here you're, you're, you're wrestling with this, this question. Did any of this even happen? 
Is, is the Bible trustworthy at all? Because, because I've just stopped and, and pointed out to you that there's a theological explanation here in verse 15, meaning I've just revealed the theological bias of the, the author of First and Second Kings. And you and I, we're, we're trained to look for that kind of bias. We want objective reporting. We want somebody to, to not slant things to their way, but just tell us the truth, give us the facts. And so we might be tempted to, to doubt the trustworthiness of an account like this that so obviously lays out its hand that says God is the one who is at work. But, but stop and think about it with me. When, when we say we want objective truth, we want, we want the facts, we don't want someone's bias, we also recognize that anytime anyone speaks to us, they're coming with some sort of bias. And we, we don't merely get to objective, the, 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 the truth of the matter, the, the historical facts. We don't get to what happened just by polling a bunch of people and saying, well, what do you think? No, when you make the, the decisions in your life, you, you don't just ask advice of random people on the street. Or if you are doing that, you should stop. It's a terrible way to live. No, you, you weigh the advice. You go to the people that you trust, people that you've seen succeed, people that you've seen follow after God, people that you know won't distort the truth when speaking to you. And that's what we have here. Yes, it's an admission that there's a theological interpretation of the facts, but it's a true interpretation because it matches reality. Because who is the one that can be trusted? God himself. That's what God's word is. The truth, the truth of God spoken to us. And so the fact that the author here has revealed his theological trust in God does not, shouldn't make us dis distrust this word should actually make us lean into it more, to follow after it. But don't you see, that's the, that's the very problem, isn't it here? That these kings will not trust the word of the Lord? I mean, let's, let's jump back in. We, we've, looked at, we've looked at Rehoboam's stupidity. Now let's look at Jeroboam's stupidity. Look, I'm, I'm going to jump back into the chapter. Chapter 12 of 1 Kings, look at verse 25. Jeroboam has been made king of, of Israel. And so then Jeroboam, in verse 25, fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on the high places, appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not, they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Jeroboam was given huge promises, and he immediately discards them. 
Jeroboam does not and will not trust the word of God. He, he immediately thinks to himself, if I follow this plan, I'm going to lose everything. If I let the people travel back down into Jerusalem, if they leave my kingdom and go into Rehoboam's kingdom, then they're going to stop calling me king. See, Jeroboam is seeking security in the kingdom that he constructs. I mean, notice, notice what he's doing. He, 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 even the names of the places, if, if you pull out a map of Israel and you look at these places and you stop and think, well, why Shechem? Like, why pick that place? Well, that's the place where, where, where Rehoboam started all of this, but Shechem is an important place because in the, in, in the, the previous story of God's people in, in Joshua 24, the people of God were gathered there to renew their covenant promises to God. And so this is a place where, where Jeroboam thinks, this is a holy place. I can, I can establish myself here. I can, I can build, build this up. And, he, and then he picks Dan and Bethel as, as places. Now they are, yes, in the far north of his kingdom and the far south. And so they, they show the extent of his kingdom. But more than that, again, holy places. Bethel means house of God. These are places important to the patriarchs. These are the places of Abraham and of Jacob. And then he comes up with this brilliant plan, golden calves. This, I mean, this is, this is a great plan. Think of it. He can, he can take a biblical image and reinterpret it for his purposes. I mean, you and I should immediately, when we hear the word golden calves, think terrible idea. Because, because it comes from the second book of the Bible, from the book of Exodus, the first, the, the first people that God leads out of slavery, they're there in the wilderness. Moses is on the mountain talking to God, and the people are sitting at the bottom of the mountain thinking, I don't think this is going to work out. We should probably come up with an alternate plan. Hey, how about some earrings? Maybe your rings, your gold watches. Let's dump them in. Let's make some golden calves, and let's bow down and, bow down and worship this calf. And so Rehoboam thinks, you know what? I could be the new Aaron, the new high priest, the new leader of God's people, the one to give them the ways to worship. And, and he, he literally repeats the words of Aaron from Exodus. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And think of it. Think of that. That's a distortion of the truth of what God had said when he gave the people the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. When God is the one who says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. We see Jeroboam does not trust the word of God. He's distorting the word of God. And even the, the descriptions in, in verses 31 through, through 33, the, all the work that he's doing, that he, he builds the shrines, that he institutes a festival, that he offer, that he, that he, that he installed priests, it's, it's, it's actually the same Hebrew word. It's just the word that he made, he made, he made, he made. It, it's almost as if the author wants us to see, don't you see who's made this up? This is a these are festivals of his own choosing. This is his attempt to build his own kingdom. And, and you and I might now want to say, well, there's clearly some, some political lessons we could learn today from this kind of thing. 
foolish men who, who argue about how, how big and powerful they are and who say, look at my great kingdoms. And, and yes, there are lessons that we can take from, from the Old Testament and apply to, to our, our current situation, but I don't think that's the primary thing God wants us to do here. He wants us to start a little closer to home. Because what is Jeroboam's big failure? He's constructing his own kingdom. He refuses to trust the promises of God. See, those are the kinds of things you and I struggle with. We think we can, we can find security. I mean, his, his fear is, is not even irrational. My life is on the line. If this kingdom falls apart, I could lose my life. It's, it's, that's not even an irrational thing. And particularly as you flip through the rest of the book, you'll, you'll see. I mean, one of these poor kings reigns for seven days. That's how long his kingdom lasts. So it's not a, it's not a foolish thing to be f- afraid for his life. The problem is he's putting his trust in himself, a kingdom that he can construct. And yet you and I, while maybe we're not as dumb as to, to make golden calves, you and I find other things in which we place our hope. The things of this world, the, the new dress, the new car, the new golf clubs, those will make me happy. Those will give my life some meaning. Or maybe we just, we just, we just store the money. We keep it. We watch it grow. We, we check the balances and see, look how much I have. Now I could be safe. Now I could be secure. But in those moments, you and I are tempted to trust in, in those things, those golden calves in our own hearts, rather than trusting in God. Or think of it, the way we treat relationships, the way that we, we look to people and say, as long as, you're, as long as you're giving me some sort of personal satisfaction, I'll keep you around. But the slightest insult means we keep someone at quite a distance. We harbor bitterness and frustration for years because, well, you know what? I just don't want to have to deal with that. You see, what we're doing is we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to build security into our own lives rather than pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation. And you and I are tempted to to turn aside from God's Word, just as Jeroboam heard of the direct promises of God and then doubted. I mean, how many of you less than a week into this year, would say you're, you're following God's word. You're, you're consistent in letting it be applied to your heart and to your life. How many of you just look at the, the busyness of life and say, say well, I, how do I have time for that? How do I have time to let God have, have some influence in my life? Or we look at the chaos and the brokenness around us and think, I just don't know. I've prayed this same prayer year after year, and I don't hear an answer. Can God be trusted? I suffer through these same terrible things. Can God's word be true? And you see, that's, that's not merely a problem for, for Jeroboam. That's the basic human problem. That's the problem at the very beginning of Scripture. When Adam and Eve in the garden hear the word of God, walk with God, and yet doubt the truth of God's promises. And so, will you trust in God? I mean, one commentator, one commentator says, many of us, many of us want to use God, but don't want to love God. 
You see, that's what Jeroboam is doing. He's using these religious institutions for his own purposes. Are you and I doing that? Are we here merely because of what it will make other people think of us, rather than we're pursuing the God who loves us? And so for you today, maybe this is a call for you to to put your trust in Jesus as king for the first time, to trust in what God is doing, because because the the books of of 1 and 2 Kings, and and we're only going to spend eight weeks on this, so we're going to jump kind of from chapter to chapter. We're not going to go, I mean, you could, if you go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you will, you will hear the same thing. There, there will be this desperate longing as you go, there must be a king who will stand up and, and believe there must be one who, who, like the people beg for, one who will be a servant, a servant of God's people. See, this series will, will point us toward that, that desperate longing for a true, a faithful king, one who, unlike Rehoboam, will be a servant for his people. And when Rehoboam speaks of the whip, it's the whip that he holds in his hand. But when the Gospels speak of the whip, it's the whip that is taken to Jesus. Jesus who shows us what it is to be a servant king. See, Jesus proves to us that God's promises stand true in the face of our stupidity. God's promises are secure because Jesus Christ died in our place. He's been raised from the dead. See, that's the ace that is still to be played in God's kingdom. When when Rehoboam, when Jeroboam get up from the table, they not only lose the hand, they throw the table over and they storm out like a child. I'm done with this stupid game. There is another, another who comes and says, I will be the faithful servant king. Jesus, the Savior, who destroys our idols. Jesus, the Savior, who is worth our devotion. Jesus, the King, who gave himself for us. And so will you put your trust in this King? Will you follow after him? Will you seek after him? Will you believe the word of God? His promises are true. His kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, lasts forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, that even in the chaos of the the historical details, even in the, the, the foolishness and sinfulness of Rehoboam and Jeroboam's rebellion against you, we hear the truth of your word, that with clarity we see your grace on display. You are the King, our Lord, our Savior. And Jesus Christ died for us. And so we rejoice in this gospel message. Lord, I pray that you would apply it to our lives for those who gather here with with doubts, with questions, who, who, who can't believe this is true. Lord, may your sovereign power, your glory and your grace break through to show us the truth of your word. Lord, for those of us who struggle, who struggle to trust you, in the face of our, of our sorrow and sadness. Lord, give us the faith to believe, even now as, as we who believe come to this table. Lord, strengthen us. We come rejoicing in the hope of the gospel, in the truth that Jesus is our King and our Savior. And so we come to declare him to be Lord of our lives. Amen.